Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and writer and film critic Anna Swanson. The first John Cassavetes film I remember seeing was Faces, and after I watched it and noticed the amount of time he lingered in close-ups on his actors existing as naturally as possible, I remember thinking... Well, now I know why they called it Faces. Cassavetti's movies helped define the naturalistic acting style of the 70s that we would see carry on until today. A method actor himself, he was considered the actor's director, with the emphasis being on character more than plot. But that also means that his work isn't for everyone. He famously once said, I hate entertainment. Anna, how should we approach Cassavetti's movies, and what should we know about him as a director to figure out if he is, in fact, for us? <laughs> I mean, I feel like the number one thing is to just a- a- approach him with an open mind, an open heart, kind of just, I think... His films can be challenging at first, for sure. I think there's definitely a learning curve to some of what he does just because it is so outside of the Hollywood norm and even so outside of, I think, what we kind of consider the norm for out, for art house films. There really isn't anyone kind of working at his time who's doing the same thing he is. And even now, I think there's there's people inspired by him, but no one that I would sort of say um, completely does what he does. Um, I think, I mean, for most people, and at least for myself, the way that I sort of got into Cassavetes was first mm-hmm. as an actor, which is probably where most people know him from, you know, with Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Mikey and Mickey, where he's phenomenal. And, you know, the best episode of Columbo. And <laughs> best buddy with Peter Falk. <laughs> he, he really had a yeah. thing with Peter Falk. Peter Falk and John Cassavetes together the is dynamic pure duo. magic. No, they're, they're absolutely the best. And I think they're so great together. And yeah, Cassavetes, phenomenal actor, but also a really interesting director. And probably his most well-known film is A Woman Under the Influence, which I think was my first of his that I saw. And... I think I think a huge way in, which is fitting because it's what he always emphasized, was the actors and particularly Jenna Rollins, who is just phenomenal. I mean, probably one of the best to ever do it. And I think that, you know, particularly Woman Under the Influence, and we'll talk about Minnie Moskowitz and her performance and everything, but the film itself can be challenging because it's so psychologically messy and dense and you never sort of have even a firm grasp on narrative or plot or character motivations but i think what you do have is really raw emotions in the performances and that can be very uncomfortable to sit through for a lot of people oh god absolutely well especially it's not just uncomfortable because of how raw it is and he he never cares about smoothing things over and he doesn't care about grace i always find it's really hard to watch because there's always some element of it being relatable 
Like if we're talking about a woman under the influence from 1974, which keep in mind, he makes Minnie and Moskowitz in 71 and then doesn't direct again until Women Under the Influence. It takes three years. And he really didn't like his experience with Minnie and Moskowitz being released by Universal. The reason why it's, it's so raw, too, is because they're very relatable emotions. Like it's the messiness in our lives that he depicts so beautifully. And he doesn't care about Hollywood's, you know, patina or it's it's gleam, all of the fakeness that Hollywood, the fantasy, he really is showing bad, bad relationships, alcoholism, which, of course, he himself was an alcoholic, um, mental illness. And it was kind of unusual in 1971. We're coming off the classical Hollywood era and showing the messiness of our lives. And I think that's where I start to cringe because both these performances and certainly Jenna Rollins and Seymour Casal and Minnie and Melskowitz are categorized as this are unbelievably profound, but it's that I, I'm just like, oh God, that's what I look like when I'm drunk and fall down the stairs. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's like that's been, and that's and how the film opens. She falls down again and she gets up. <laughs> and, and she's she not hurt. It's again. not like this like dire thing where she's just no. showing that she doesn't have much in her life. She is depressed. This is how she, you know, she's drinking with an older colleague and they have a bit too much wine and she's trying to get into a cab and she falls and she's not hurt or anything, but it's like, kind of relatable. I think what's interesting to me about these films is to read about them with hindsight. So when you look at the current uh, or when you look at contemporary reviews of people like Ebert writing in 71 or um, uh, Pauline Kael or people like that who like were very much in this time and we're seeing a lot of movies to see what they hated and what they loved is fascinating because there was nothing it's like very this. Telling. It's very telling. They hate husbands. They hate husbands so much. That went so mm, poorly. Yeah. Which watching husbands, I'm like, it's kind of interesting. But what they love is anything that involved Jenna Rollins. And for filmmakers, he also does not shy away from making interesting, strong female characters because of Jenna. And she's capable of it. And he was so admirous, I'm going to use that word, of her skills and her ability. We're going to talk about her much more uh, in this episode. And we have another episode coming up in 1980 about her that you don't you see him giving roles for women that did not exist for anybody else making movies in the 70s i mean he cast his mom i think Je- i mean jenna is the star jenna's the star but cat but both Catherine cassavetes and lady Rollins. so jenna Rollins's real life mother plays her mother in this mm-hmm. film and then seymour cassell's mother is played by john's mother Catherine cassavetes that role which we see very little of but it's very important that third act of this you know jewish new jersey or new york and be long island Island mother who just tells it like it is. She loves her son, but she calls him a bum and she calls him all kinds of <laughs> awful things. And but they're realistic. I mean, he yeah. just and I think I think Jenna's father is in this as well as the and then there's a brother and their daughter Zoe the, is as well. She's the baby at the very is end. the baby. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. and I believe Zan is also in this as another child role. Like this is a family affair. All of his films are family affairs, but I think this one is the most yes. in terms of like mm-hmm. people with the last name Cassavetes or Rollins <laughs> right. uh, in one of his Well, films. let's get into this because I have seen Minnie and Moskowitz described as Cassavetes' most lighthearted and accessible movie being a take on the screwball comedy. Now, keep in mind, this is also a movie where there's a significant amount of physical and emotional abuse throughout between several of the characters. But so are classic screwballs that I love, like The Philadelphia Story and His Girl Friday. Go back and watch those and be very disturbed, but also 
delighted at the same time. Uh, Absolutely. This is a movie that I am still chewing on how I feel about, but I do know I laughed out loud more than once. I was horrified into silence in other moments, and I am currently scouring the internet for Jenna Rollins sunglasses. Anna, let's talk Minnie and Moskowitz. Did this make you crave Pink's hot dogs? Because it sure made me feel like I just need a fucking hot dog. <laughs> so unfortunately, I am vegetarian, but I think like just the uh, okay. vibe of, you know, just somewhere cheap and fun at night. Just like, absolutely. I think um, in general with Cassavetes, but also this film, like it feels so lived in where you're like, oh, these are real people. Like this is probably more than anything I've seen, just something where I'm like, this is how people lived. And this feels very authentic. And obviously it's filmed like on location a lot and they filmed in their own house a lot and they filmed with their families a lot. So of course it feels real and authentic. But I think um, even beyond all the knowledge that you have about how much authenticity there was in the film, there's just a feeling that's kind of indescribable, but it's there where you're just like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, this this is what life is. As you mentioned, it's kind of riffing on the screwball comedy where we have these two characters um, who, so well, Minnie and Mosquitz is in the title, very fittingly, but he is kind of a little bit of a schlubby, like, valet parking driver. He's just kind of, I think he's recently moved to LA from New York, I believe he says, um, and settling mm-hmm. in and not exactly making friends and <laughs> he's an interesting character and then you have Minnie Moore who's obviously played by Jenna Rollins and she's um kind of caught in this very complicated relationship with a man played by John Cassavetes who is married and dating her and they have something very fraught definitely tinges of abuse um and She's just not having a lot of luck in love, very clearly. And the two sort of meet. um, And even that isn't exactly a meet cute. It's not sort of what we'd consider in a traditional rom-com, but they... It's a pure yeah. nightmare. <laughs> it's it's a meat bad. Like she like, is on yeah. one of the most accurate bad dates I think I have ever seen. Yes. Where I was like, I've been out with that guy, <laughs> and I've had to make excuses. Like that was a thing. And yeah, it's just it's wild how this swings between being overly accurate and totally fantasy gaga nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. No, absolutely. And I think that that's kind of the driving force of their relationship is that it's it's this connection, but it's also really kind of warped and messy and um, complicated, to say the least. Um, but they really kind of develop something. And there is, I think you also do see, as much as it's complicated, I think there is a kind of a fondness there or a sort of mutual um, interest Like, there's something there between them. There's a reason that they sort of find each other. And um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough one to sort of parse through exactly how I feel about their relationship and and oh, you yeah, know yeah. whether I I'm screaming at her to run or whether I'm like okay, <laughs> you know. I mean, it does. Sometimes you scream at her to run and she runs, and it doesn't matter because he's ch- yeah. he literally chases her with a car. Um, it is. That's one of the most yeah. terrifying. That's how it's, straight out of a horror movie. Like it was wild. I found an interview where Cassavetti said it's dedicated to all the people who didn't marry the person they should have. And that's disturbing. (laughs) I really like, but I really appreciate it because like, I hope all of our listeners are in partnerships that they should be with that person. But let's be honest, 
maybe that's only 20% of you. <laughs> go, yeah. The other 80%. <laughs> well, you go through any Ikea and you see all oh, of yes. those people. That is yes. the true test Ikea, of a relationship. <laughs> I mean, if Cassavetes were to direct a film set in Ikea, um, but it is true that like, if I think about everyone pretty much up until the partner I'm with now, I really can pin- pick it apart with hindsight that that was a disaster. And I mean, if it was a different era, like Minnie is about 40 in this film. She's a professional. She's, she's a curator of the Los Angeles County She's Museum. got her shit together for um, most, of, most of what's going on with the exception of her yeah. love. And in play. 1971, to be, yes. to be that age and unmarried mm-hmm. is very different mm-hmm. than now. So, I mean, she was really kind of unmarriageable. And so it makes sense that she she's kind of settling. She's settling to be lonely but with someone instead of lonely alone. And with someone who allegedly worships her. Like that's the big thing too is that he's there to support her quote unquote I guess. I I mean you don't when this film ends you don't know if it's going to work out and I honestly it doesn't matter. I think it's a really honest portrayal of how sometimes you get in over your head and find yourself in these relationships that on paper or someone looking from the outside would be like what are you thinking? Mm -hmm. And you either get out, and that was probably, it's probably harder for many in 1971 than it is for us in 2021, or you stick with it. And um, I have a lot of empathy for that. I have a lot of empathy for like our parents' generation where divorce was not as common. And the idea of like, you can be with someone and own a house with them and maybe you can have kids, but you don't have to marry them. Like that is not going on in 1971, even in hippie culture, you know, Los Angeles. So it's just, it's a different time around constraints for women. Um, And this whole episode is about class, right? And there's so much about the different class structures that the class that Minnie is in, which, yes, she's a working girl, but she's, you know, kind of in the intelligentsia as a art curator. And then there's the class that, you know, Seymour Cassell, um, Moskowitz's character is in. He's a parking attendant. And I love in the end when he's trying to kind of build himself up to say he has aspirations. He doesn't ever tell their parents that he doesn't want to be a parking attendant. He just says maybe he could graduate to a larger parking lot. That's the most he can see for his future. He loves cars, though. He loves them. He doesn't want to be a mechanic. He doesn't want to work on them. He just wants to watch them while they are still. (laughs) That is pretty amazing to me. It's lovely. It's so beautiful. It's... uh, I, I think starting this film, and this is a recent watch for me, I, this was one of the ones I was missing in my Cassavetes filmography, and I watched it this year, and, you know, the first 30 minutes is like, oh, no, I don't like this, no, 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 and then it wins you over, and all of a sudden you're under, I think, Moskowitz's spell, and you're under the spell of this relationship, and then I found myself making, having hopes that I probably shouldn't have, given how abusive some of the parts of this film, some of the parts yeah. of this film is, and it's it's... It's quite the feat. I've never, and I think that's true of uh, Woman Under the Influence too, where the first 30 minutes, I'm like, please stop. Please stop the film right now. I can't do this. But by the end, you are completely captivated, completely a different, feel like a different person. Mm -hmm. Anna, did this one win you over as well in your Cassavetes encyclopedia? Yeah, I would say it did. I mean, I think just kind of going off what Alicia was saying, I think that it's interesting how the reasons we are wary of their relationship and the reason that, you know, characters who like the, I'm thinking of the scene where um, they kind of run into a group of her friends outside of the restaurant. The reasons that they are wary are totally different, um, where I think we're kind yeah. of looking at what's the dynamic in this? Is this a healthy relationship for her? Like, is this going to become abusive like or like continue to become abusive and all that. That's also a 2021 way of looking at at, at relationships. They didn't think about that. Yeah. But I think, yeah. And just the fact of like 
the issues within the film of why they might not be compatible, they might not work, is so much more based around um, class and ambition than like, mm-hmm. you know, the question of whether or not this is an abusive relationship, which it's it's interesting just how how it all shifts. So it's interesting we talk about class because there's also, we mentioned earlier that there's a wasp versus Jew thing going on and that mm-hmm. Jenna Rollins comes from a waspy background. Uh, and then uh, Moskowitz is, of course, Jewish. But then you also have this New York versus L.A., like from like the scrubs and suburbs of yeah. New York versus like he moves to California where like everything's more laid back and like he's uh, being with more affluent people and there seems to be more wealth uh, reg- like kind of spread out as opposed to centralized mm-hmm. in New York. It's a very interesting contrast because you get to see both worlds and him interact in both worlds. And the way people People treat him in both worlds. That's a great point. I also think a lot about um, it's definitely Los Angeles, but there's also a lot of pivotal scenes of Hollywood. Um, when they go to the ice cream parlor, which is, and I did research this, CeCe Brown's legendary um, hot fudge sundae parlor, which was on Hollywood Boulevard and closed in the 1990s, but was where you would go and see Judy Garland eating a hot fudge sundae in the 1940s. It's where you would go, where Marilyn Monroe went on a lot of really famous dates that were photographed. It was sort of the social um, communal nexus of, of Hollywood. And so to set the film there, to me, is really Cassavetes and Rollins, because they were, very, it's not just that she's the actress, right? Like they are collaborating on every step of this film. We should really probably say she's almost the co director oh, yeah. or a co writer. On basically um, any of his films, she is right absolutely, there guiding yeah, everything. She's, yes. She is the face. But, um, you know, to set it there, I really think it's a lot about you know, Cassavetes and Rollins commenting on the illusion of Hollywood. And that's what this whole film is about. We are introduced to Minnie and she's going to see Casablanca for the umpteenth time. She sees Casablanca multiple times during this film on separate days. The film only takes place during four days and she's seen Casablanca twice. I get it. But she talks about how (laughs) I get it too. I know. mm, Yes, we do. We do that. But, um, she just talks about how, how Hollywood leads you on, that there is no Clark Gable, there is no Charles Boyer, um, that it's all illusion and that's why she'll never be happy is that she started watching Hollywood films too young and that's what she wants out of life and she'll never get it. And I think that that is really so pivotal for a Cassavetes film to show everything that Hollywood is not, to show the messiness and the the unglamorous and um, the unpredictability. This is such an unpredictable film. And I love it for that reason because it does, it's, it actually ultimately does look very glamorous because it's Jenna Rollins and she's one of the most beautiful women, thankfully, still on this planet. But I do want to say that, like, this is a, a one of the reasons I love 70s movies so much and that I'm, I really struggle watching modern cinema, like, that from North America, especially from Hollywood, is that people don't look like people in movies anymore. Everybody is so glossed and mm-hmm, so glamorous. And when you watch this, you're like, these, like, Seymour Cassell is not an attractive man. <laughs> you know, no. he has his charm, but he's not, like, Hollywood hot. It's like when you watch um, television from the 90s and like they're presenting someone as jacked when like they have a nice body but like now it's like every, you have to be superhero jacked or you're not considered jacked. These are just people and so it allows you to lose yourself into it and then on top of that the performances are so incredible and so raw and so realistic without t- the tipping point into melodrama that it's easier to get sucked into these are actual people yeah. in this situation um, and I, I, I miss that about movies and this has that and all Cassavetes, all Cassavetes have that if people haven't seen Faces go watch Faces it's a fucking nightmare in a movie and it's stunning <laughs> yeah and i mean the, the violence that's there and there's a lot of it there's a lot of bloody noses there's a lot of people who deserve to get beat up like the the first man she goes on the blind date with which is one of the most um 
tense scenes I've probably seen in a long time. Um, he definitely deserves to get his ass kicked because he's going to start to get violent mm-hmm. with her and, and you know, Moscovis stops it. But a lot of the nosebleeds and stuff, it's really screwball slapstick. Yeah. And it's one article I was reading was saying it's, you know, it's a, it's a cat and mouse chase that would be typical of Looney Tunes in the 1930s and 1940s. But here we have it in this naturalistic cinema verite um, film without all the glitz and glamour. And so, you know, that's also something Cassavetes is really playing with. One of the people I want to point towards uh, who was one of, he's one of my favorite character actors, and he was definitely one of Cassavetes' favorite character actors, is Timothy Carey. Uh, he actually popped up yes. in, um, when we talked about what's uh, what's the matter with Helen, uh, he's in that as well. I mean, are you familiar at all, Anna, with Timothy Carey? I, I think he's one of those guys that I recognize, but I couldn't quite place where from, but I'm sure I, I've, if I looked it up right now, I could tell you that I've seen a bunch of stuff. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. He was around for a long time. Like, we're talking, he was doing westerns in, like, the, the late 40s, early 50s. Um, and he was a guy who... Um, was considered one of the craziest actors out there. And I say that both in terms of mental health and both in terms of like the kind of performance he's he was willing to commit himself to. Uh, according to Michael McKean on Twitter, there was once a consideration that he was going to play Squiggy's father. Uh, but <laughs> apparently that ended very poorly after he was on set in front of a live audience for one day. But he's one of those people that um, he was an actor's actor. He was part of the method thing that people just liked him so much. They just kept throwing him bones. And I think he his opening here where he's talking to Seymour Cassell in a um, in a diner. This is kind of the first like introduction to Moskowitz you get is just like this bizarre rant ramble that feels improvised like a lot of Cassavetes, mm-hmm. but is delivered so off the cuff and it's actually fully scripted that it's not. I just saw a movie called The Maltese Falcon. You ever see yeah, that? Oh, I don't care anything. I don't know anything about cinema. I don't like it. Bunch of lonely people going in looking out. Forget about it. That's great. It's fantastic. Because, yeah, he's so intense. And he's there for one minute at the very beginning and almost steals the show. Like, he's such an interesting human Mm -hmm. being. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that he's such a a lurking presence. Like, he's just, he's such a large man, too, that he just is someone that you would almost expect out of the silent film era. And so it doesn't surprise me that Cassavetes would be super attracted to a face like that. It just, it works so well in this working class um, setting of the diner where it's just, and it, you know, there's violence from the very beginning. Like even in that scene, it's it's. Yeah, it's, I think it's a fantastic way to set up just how Moskowitz interacts with other people. Yeah, not well. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the woman he accosts? Of, I know you. Don't you know me? I'm Moskowitz. You know me, Moskowitz. You remember me? I know uh, Ginger. No, I'm sorry. Uh, no, this this is my wife. This isn't Ginger. No. The setup is so non-traditional of who these characters are because you go into a movie and the way it is structured, you're like, oh, you have. Seen the cat and therefore I am supposed to be on your side and they're setting things up here but you genuinely don't know how they're going to pay off with the exception of the fact that he is an incredibly persistent motherfucker so like you you know yeah. you don't actually know how you're being set up in a traditional structure sense so you're always kept off your guard and that can make an uncomfortable viewing experience yeah yeah I mean he Cassavetes is the master of toxic masculinity like he, no one has ever, had never done it prior to him and no one has done it since. If you think about, and you brought this film up, uh, Becky, Husbands is just 1970. Yeah. He's coming straight off of Husbands. Husbands is definitely the like crown jewel of toxic masculine <laughs> cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very few women other than the victims that are in that film. So it's interesting for me to see him transition to what we're calling one of his most approachable films, which is probably 
not as approachable as people think, uh, where he then introduces a character like Minnie to sort of balance out, and as well as the mother-in-laws, for sure, to balance out the toxicity of both his own character, which is entirely uncredited in the film. You don't ever see John Cassavetti's name as playing this this character. It's interesting. And then, of course, of Moskowitz, because uh, I can't get through Husbands. It's really hard for me. It is... Um, I think someone, I remember reading a review of The Hangover, and I don't know if the reviewer had actually ever watched Husbands, but they were comparing The Hangover to Husbands. And I was like, no, you clearly haven't ever watched it, because that is like the most torturous experience of men behaving badly. But it's a buddy uh, movie, right? It's a bunch of guys hanging out, getting drunk, doing buddy things. In the beginning, <laughs> that's what you, he tricks you, right? Like, yep. that's what Cassavetes does, in the same way that he did in Minnie Moskowitz. Like, you think it's going to be this brutal film and there's brutality in it and then it's it's just really lovely ending and you really actually at least I did and maybe I'm completely delusional came away feeling uplifted and that love does exist I'm probably delusional (laughs) I think the probably the biggest thing at the end for me is that she genuinely looks happy and I don't know if that will last but the fact that in that one moment she as a human being has gotten to experience pure happiness and I think that's really the most any of us can ask for I'm gonna say that that's what that's my yeah none of us know what's gonna last especially in 2021 like just live in the moment keep the people you love close to you don't you know don't overthink things would be what I would say no, do, right now. do overthink things. Uh, think, think about If someone chases you down in a car, <laughs> start well, thinking about yeah. it. Um, they wouldn't get the, through the, they wouldn't get through my front door if they had ever chased me But he, car, he gets through her front door because he kicks it down. Also, can That's we true. talk about how amazing that giant eye painting is on her wall? Oh, I I'm want like, that. what is with the decor? That's got to yeah. be in Cassavetti's actual house. The all-seeing <laughs> eye of the camera is always there. It's very strange. They do a very good job of making her feel like a very authentic art curator like her costuming um she just looks the part so much like you've already the aforementioned sunglasses which are so perfect for you know a a curator of 1971 like when we say curator black now it means like women that you see wearing all black and very you know elaborate like leather shoes and this is a different kind of curator that you would have found in the 70s wearing like neon Mm -hmm. colors and really intricate prints and then her home which I, you're right, I think it is Cassavetti's and Rollins's real home, at least their L.A. home, is perfect as an art curator's home. And it's probably their, like, real art on the walls, if I had to guess. I wouldn't doubt it. Well, there's a, we're going to get into Cassavetti's and art and the way he introduces it a lot more in one of our future episodes and, and that relationship. Um, but I want to talk for a minute about how this got made in the first place and the bank rolling. Anna, do you know anything about this? Yeah, I know it was always a very contentious process for him to get money and get financed. And I think it was a very very combative process where he didn't want anyone else to be able to you know have the option to tell him how to make his movies because they were paying for it so you know but um, I don't actually know the specifics. I'm curious. He was hired on because uh, Universal was basically throwing million dollar budgets at a bunch of like up and coming, quote unquote, filmmakers, filmmakers with voices who had already kind of produced things like Husbands or Faces to see what ha- what they could get and if they could get an easy rider style ah. mega hit. Because um, as we have talked about this before, this was after Easy Rider, no one knew what was going to be the next giant thing. Um, so they were just like, OK, well, you know what? People are going to 
love this weird screwball comedy. So let's throw a million dollars at it and see if that's what it does. It did not. It did. You know what? It did okay. Like it was fine. But it's he's just such a not for everybody director. I don't think there's any possible way this could have been an Easy Rider style hit. Yeah, probably not. I mean, I think it's also the tough thing is you can never predict what hits, right? Like I think there's no specific thing that uh, makes it good or bad or not even good or bad, but just successful in a commercial sense or not. Um, I'm sure, you know, if you went back and showed Easy Rider to someone a couple years before it came out and they said, this is going to be a huge hit, they would have said, no, it's not. So it's tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I even think about just his ne- his next film after this one being um, A Woman Under the Influence that he got an Oscar nom for. And I'm sure if you ask John Cassavetes in like 1970, 1971, do you think you're going to be nominated for an Oscar? He would have laughed in your face. Well, because he thought of himself as an actor before a director, Mm -hmm. right? Like he mostly just wanted a playground for other actors, which is why he directed. He's like, let's just all go hang out with my buddies and do stuff. (laughs) A bit like Adam Sandler. (laughs) Think about that. That would be a great double feature. (laughs) Husbands and grownups. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uncut. Yeah. Uncut gems in this. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people have noted that, you know, he didn't have an ego as a director because of that. Like he really wanted whoever he brought on, whether they were an actor or an art director or a cinematographer, and he did a lot of that himself too. He wanted them to feel like the project was their own. Otherwise, it wasn't worth it. And that's not really how we view auteurs. That's not really how we view egotistical directors who want to put their stamp on everything and everyone else is just their puppet, including actors. I think that's what really distinguishes him during this period is he's allowing that, he's giving that freedom to everyone. And that's why you get these magical things in Minya Moskowitz that I don't think anyone else would have been able to achieve. Um, And it's why we get Jenna Rollins the way that we do, because I think most directors would have been scared of her. And that is historically true, right? Her best work is with Cassavetes because no one really knew how to work with her and wanted her to just fit into that bombshell blonde Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall sort of role. And she doesn't mm-hmm. fit that. She could do it, but she's so and much And I think more. even just kind of going off that, I thought of um, there's a point in the movie where it's commented on, you know, you look like Lauren Bacall from the side. And, and she does. Yeah. She's obviously astonishingly yeah. beautiful. But I think um, just going off what you were saying about, you know, other directors didn't really know what to do with her. I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that what to do with her is give her freedom, allow her to have part of the yeah. decision, the decision making process, which is what Cassavetes did. I mean, he was yeah. very collaborative. I think all of what we're saying about, you know, he wasn't that sort of classical auteur where he wanted full control and he wanted to put his stamp on it. He wouldn't have said that about himself. He wanted it to be a process. I think he did a lot of rewriting based on actors' input of scripts and stuff like that. So I think a lot of why she delivers so many fantastic performances in his films, yes, she's a phenomenal actress, and yes, he gives her great material to work with, but I'm sure it's also that she had a collaborative part in that process. Mm-hmm. And there's a trust mm-hmm. there of, I'm sure, when I, I, I am an actor. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you, something actors love to do is feel and let you know <laughs> that they are feeling. <laughs> and sometimes that ends up being a masturbatory performance. It never feels, so they're, they're like um, uh, feeling bad because they can feel bad and they're hoping that will translate to you, but it never does. It's, uh, that's always the performance that makes us go, too much, too much. Jenna Rollins never does that. She always like hits like the perfect raw wall where it's uncomfortable to watch because it looks like it's real, but not because she's doing it just to do a performance. And I think that's the line that Cassavetes is very good at finding with his actors is making mm-hmm. sure they pull back right before they hit that point. 
there's a cadence to the way that she speaks and it's it's there in her most dramatic moments when she's let's say fighting but it's also there in just her ordering a hot fudge sundae that i am obsessed with and it's no it's not an accent it's not it's just this mannerism that she has that transports me to a different world Um, I can't even describe it. I don't think it can be impersonated. But if you just play any audio clip of her in any film, specifically just choose this one, there's a way she delivers lines and the way that she says things and simple words that I'm just like, what? You're she's an alien. Like I don't understand how she speaks, and it and yet it's 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 discernible. It's just no one talks like this. Do you have malted? I sure do. Okay, I'll have one. And I love it so much. I love her ordering that hot fudge sundae. It is when she's like, just 10 minutes. I want to deliver it. Is that okay? 10 minutes? Like, I'm trying to do it. I can't. Is do that it. a When Harry Met Sally inspiration, do you think? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> just, just checking. And on that note, we should probably move on to our next movie. Uh, when we come back, guys, I know I say it's going to get weird a lot, but it's going to get weird. We're looking at Yugoslavian cinema and WR Mysteries of the Organism. That's coming up after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There are some movies that you watch and you think, okay, I may need to take an entire semester of university classes just to begin to understand what the filmmaker is doing. Dushan Makaveyev is one of those filmmakers. But what makes him especially fascinating is that his films are also terrifically vulgar and surreal. May I point people towards the revolting but magnetic sweet movie, which I think he's best known for. Today, we'll be looking at WR, Mysteries of the Organism. Alicia, this one doesn't have so much of a plot as it does a concept, so I saved it for you. Want to walk us through it? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, I genuinely don't. Um, and I will, full disclosure, I thought this was a good idea. <laughs> so the podcast, mostly because I got so enamored with Minnie and Moskowitz. That I was like, okay, what's a, what's a film from 1971 that is all about, you know, working class or class structure? And then I was like, oh, wow, there's a Marxist dialectic film from Let's just put that on sight unseen. Um, I actually had seen it, but uh, this is a really hard film to describe. It's it, the name of the filmmaker is hard to pronounce. And I'm just going to say it once so that and hopefully correct so that we can then take it and use it for every other time that I say it incorrectly later in the podcast. But Dushan Makaveyev. That's right. Um, 
Yugoslavian. Uh, I have a huge interest in Yugoslavian history and Yugoslavia as a region, having recently visited pre-COVID Slovenia and Serbia and Croatia. Um, so I'm re- I was really interested as a culture, which is kind of why I was attracted to this film. But I think it's probably best described as sort of a, a film essay. And that was very much in vogue in the early 70s. If you think about um, a filmmaker like Chris Marker or what some of the French New Wave filmmakers were making, they are these sort of film essays more than narratives, which isn't to say that this film doesn't have some elements of narrative. In fact, they have it has multiple lines of narrative that sometimes it's really hard to figure out where the threads all kind of come into place. Um, In some ways, it's a remake of a 1949 film called The Vow, which was um, about Stalin um, and Russia and a figure skater. So that's in there. There's a figure skater. Um, It also employs a lot of like, I don't know how to describe them. I mean, in some cases, they're factory superstars, like Warhol factory superstars, but they're very political avant-garde artists and sort of figures in the underground that would have been very well known to artists. And then on the other end, this is kind of a fake biopic on um, the Austrian-American psychologist um, and psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich, who was an assistant to Freud. And Reich had theories that um, the organism, sorry, the orgasm, and keep in mind in some countries this is called WR mysteries of the orgasm, but it gets changed to organism to be sort of kosher. Um, that the orgasm is the key to freedom, and so Reich actually built something called the Orgone, and it was this sort of phone booth esque box that, when someone had an orgasm inside it, could harness the power of the orgasm. Um, this all really happened. Reich's, uh, you know, writings were obviously banned in both the U.S. and throughout Europe. Um, to the point where they were dies. burned. Like, when's the last time you guys can think of a book that was, at, like, full-scale burned for the ideas yeah, in this country? I think as late as the 80s, yeah. this was burned. Um, and he he was condemned by the FDA because of his thoughts on um, sex. I'm unclear what the F, the Food and Drug Administration <laughs> It was specifically the health claims that he was making that had oh, to go fair. with it. And yeah, especially the orgone. So the orgone energy is the orgasmic uh, energy that is released. And uh, this is now stuff that's in my head. Thank you, Alicia. <laughs> and the, <laughs> and the <laughs> orgone box is how you would collect it when you masturbated or had sex inside of it. And there's still yeah. there's so much so that like people were, and this is literally just like a foil lined box with like a little tube. Um, I don't know what, what happens with the tube. I did not inquire. I did not look at diagrams. But apparently like they had to dismantle these boxes and like they were hiding out pieces of these boxes in people's basements, which is how Thule Kupferberg, who is in the film, uh, mm-hmm. ended up uh, in this because he had an, pieces of an orgone box in his basement. But this supposedly is like life force. And if you can harness it, you will be healthy. You will be young. It's basically the cure-all, which cures nothing, right? Yeah, I could see the FDA <laughs> cracking down on that. Just a little bit. think yes. of uh, High Life, the Claire <laughs> um, Denis film. <laughs> Pretty much. I was thinking High Life. I was thinking Ooh, Under the yes. Skin a little bit. Like there's actually a lot of riffs on that. That's a great point, Anna. Um, and so, you know, there there is a storyline in here where it's the storyline is sort of the remakes remake of the vow but then it's also a lot of dialectic um there's you know an incredible sequence of warhol superstar um jackie curtis walking down 42nd street to maybelline and copper tone commercials from the 19 probably 50s or 60s 
it, there's parts of this film that if you take them on their own, I think are fantastic. What I can't figure out is how they all come together. And I know that this is a masterpiece and I know that I love it. I just don't understand it or know why. And that's okay to me. And for Makaveyev, you know, he gets a little more mainstream as his career goes on. This predates a film called Sweet Movie, which is similar. And then he starts making films with like Eric Roberts. Wow. And uh, it, it's a very different part of his career in the 80s and 90s. So he's restaging all these Eisenstein films. There's, you know, lots of scenes of Stalin. There's a lot of Soviet montage that he takes from Eisenstein and, and puts in this film and then re-edits it. Um, probably one of the biggest things that this film is known for is uh, scenes of un- many scenes of unsimulated sex, which would have been unusual in 1971 outside of you know porno theaters. But we're before then. Deep Throat, way way before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is well, a few years. This is pretty unusual, and obviously gets this film. Um, not only does this film get banned in Yugoslavia and throughout Europe, but like. Uh, the filmmaker is excommunicated. That's not the right word, but like banished exiled, from the, yeah. yeah, exiled from the Soviet Union. Um, this is banned in the U.S. for a really long time. He wasn't allowed back into Yugoslavia, I think, until the late '80s. Um, so this had a lot of far-reaching implications, and a lot of people wrote on this film. This isn't a film, and I know sometimes we've done this on the podcast where it's like this really obscure film, and even trying to find contemporary reviews from the time it came out is impossible. No, everyone wrote about this film. It really was a conversation point, um, even for people who hadn't seen it, and it was so notorious and only heard of it. And it's important to keep in mind this is the Cold War. Like the U.S. and North America is very curious about what the fuck these communists are doing. And then I can imagine them watching this and being like, "We knew it. We knew they were depraved all along." <laughs> so it's it's uh... and then it's also really funny. Like I found a quote where he was saying, um, "In Yugoslavia, we are 100% Marxist." Uh, 50% of that is Groucho and the other 50% is Carl. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good description. This is part Karl Marx, part Groucho Marx. And man, it really, it really works. I don't know. And I don't know what it's all. Do you know what it's about, Anna? Uh, I don't know what it's about. I know that I do. <laughs> I like having movies that I know are smarter than me because I feel like it gives me something to work towards <laughs> where, you know, maybe one day I'll understand this better. Um, no, I was thinking about this movie. I think if... If it was edited slightly and you kind of had it with these like self-contained sequences as, you know, a 20 minute short film that's in and of itself rather than spaced out and, and cut non-linearly and everything or like non-linear for like a documentary, right? Like, but um, if you mm-hmm. put this into little tidbits that were all sort of consecutive, you'd probably have a firmer sense of it, but I don't know if it would be as impactful because I think part of this experience and maybe i think because it's it's very much about this sort of intellectual you know theories around socialism and marxism and, and marxism and communism that part of the experience is being in this state of i don't know what's going on but i'm intrigued by it and i'm curious about yeah. where this is going and i know that there is something here and i know that this is speaking to something that i understand and maybe I'm just not sure how to articulate what that is. You are experiencing the film exactly how he wants you to experience the film. There's a fantastic interview with him that's 20 minutes long on Criterion. This is part of the Criterion collection um, where he actually says, uh, I want people to watch this and have more questions, get curious and then start looking things up for themselves. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. how I experience it too, Anna. And so I feel like what you need to do is grab the little thread that intrigues you most, like is W.R. Reich like 
like my little thread or am I more interested in like the idea of sexuality and communism or like what is uh, and that the, the, like the person has to be the only way the person can actually be truly free is through sexual liberation, um, which is a theme that he will continue with through his entire career. And then you kind of run with that thread and then that hopefully leads you to other things. But all he's really asking you to do is be intellectually curious, which I'm sure in communist Yugoslavia is a big no, no. So that explains part of it. Right. I, I liked all the sculpture, the penis sculptures. Yes, that's really, that, that was apparently was supposed to be its own documentary thing that was supposed uh. to be screened separately. But then he just <laughs> and he couldn't figure out where it fit. And so this is a bit like improvisational jazz. Think of it that way, where like it feels oh, yeah. right to put it in that moment. And therefore, that's where it is. Hmm. You seem to understand this film quite well, Becky. I did a lot of research on Sweet Movie when we talked about it on another podcast. So okay, that's good. To kind of okay. this out. I think the other thing that really intrigues me that I'm curious about your guys' opinion about this is in a number of his movies, he dismembers and disfigures women who are still alive. In, oh, like, I mean, that's in to be expected moment. in 1971. <laughs> totally. It's not that dissimilar from Minya Moskovitz. <laughs> exactly. And I just, I, I just think that's like the one image that I just can't, can never really reconcile myself with. In Sweet Movie, he packs um, Carol Lore into a suitcase where it's just yeah. her head sticking out and walks along with her. It's very weird. And we're talking about Melina Dravic, who is luminescent in this, or luminous in this um, film. She's really great. I kind of I was reminded watching it of a little bit of like um, Daisies, the Vera Chitalova film. There's an anarchy to this that is usually associated with um, Chitalova's feminist filmmaking. There's a little bit of like Polly Magoo in this. Um, there's a lot of like interesting 60s sort of references that the cutoff head that we see at the end where she's still blinking and kind of it's it's very just surreal, very dolly, very absurd. I don't necessarily think of it as misogynist myself. And then I also just was picturing the, you know, the very schlocky B movie, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. <laughs> ah, yes. I actually I actually do wonder if it's a reference to that, which is kind of interesting. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Anna? How does the, the, the severed head? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't know that this was kind of his thing. Um, this is my first uh, film of his that I've seen. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I didn't kind of go to a, an assumption there that it had, you know, necessarily misogynistic undertones. I think just the whole movie is chaotic and unpredictable. And that moment is chaotic <laughs> and unpredictable. So um, that's kind of my, my, that was my takeaway. But I am curious to kind of see more of his films and see what, you know, through lines I can draw or what sort of stands out to me or... Yeah, in 1985, he makes The Coca-Cola Kid, which is this Australian comedy starring, of all people, Eric Roberts and um, Greta Sachi. And it's, it's I think it's real. I've never seen it. I'm dying to see it. I think it's incredibly notorious. Um, and it's about like, a, the I think it's like an executive at Coca-Cola Company. So if you think about, you know, this filmmaker making so much about Marxism and socialism and and you know, critiquing corporate America, which she does in the sequence with um, Jackie Curtis walking down 42nd Street. I cannot wait to say, I cannot wait to see his take on Coke in the mid 1980s. I really need to see this. I've never seen it available. I, I will. This will be my homework um, after this podcast. I am so sure. glad that you keep bringing up Jackie Curtis because she is one of my favorites of the Warhol oh, yeah. superstars. And I think this is yeah. a great 
perception of her like it's a great cap it's a great time capsule of new york at that time in general it's a great time capsule of her if people want to know more about jackie curtis there's a great documentary about her called um superstar in a house dress which is excellent Uh, i recommend that one and she is also the jackie of take a walk on the wild side by lou reed so (laughs) you know (laughs) she she got around a little bit I really like the combination of the documentary and then these fakes, these like little vignettes and things. Then you go back to the documentary to hear people actually who are like very sexually liberated discussing how they were liberated, what it means to them, especially with Jackie. She's talking about gender fluidity. Mm -hmm. And the next time I saw him, I was a girl and he couldn't get ready. Still turned on, but he was like into sleeping with boys which was sort of uh, very limited when he had all the equipment. I mean, since I was the same person, I mean, literally the same person. And she would go between being uh, Jackie Curtis to being James Dean. She was very into James Dean, as we hear in Take a Walk on the Wild Side. But it's points of view that I'm sure were shocking at the time in 1971, but still feel innovative now. Absolutely. Like, we haven't wrapped our head around all these issues that Makaveyev is discussing. And this is the 50th anniversary of this film. I mean, I love that we're talking about, this is our last episode, that is 1971, but we're really talking about films that are 50 years old. And this is the oldest point we've ever talked about in this podcast. And so we've talked about a lot of films where we're still grappling with these issues. Um, And of course, he passed away quite recently. And so there's a lot of retrospectives on his films. And it's, I think a lot of people, a lot of critics, a lot of historians are just now grappling with his whole body of work um, and the history of Yugoslavia, which is a complex history with its own brand in relationship to communism and Marxism. Um, I like fell in love with Slovenia and fell in love with you know that region of the world and like as soon as COVID's over that's the first place I'm going to. So stop me if I'm um, wrong, but like it yeah. Yugoslavia is fascinating, especially during the Cold War because it is communist, but it's not actually part of the Soviet Union and it's still open enough that it had a pretty big film uh, film department uh, like a film. Um, Uh, industry as well as it was like open for tourism like you could go to the beaches and things like that yeah it was definitely where so it was open for tourism and I can't really say I can't really speak to if people from the west typically went to Yugoslavia but certainly Russians that was like it was like their their Mm -hmm. Florida their 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 Mexico like it was where they would vacation and so it, it was this kind of freer destination but that came with a lot of complications and I think it's it's complications that they still live with today like I spending time there talking to a lot of younger people who didn't grow up under communism you know they are have a very different opinion of some of the older generation or even people our age to be honest who grew up under communism and think things got a lot worse when communism fell um slovenia is part of the eu croatia but you know they're all divided up now as their own countries and they aren't all they aren't united they aren't actively you know, one force and one politics. So it's, it's, and I feel like I'm not, someone from these countries can get really mad at this podcast. It's so, so complicated I'm apologizing. that we don't really want to touch on it. It's like, is this? Yeah, I don't yeah. want to, but I just know that um, there is an art scene in Slovenia and Serbia and Croatia that I just didn't expect. And specifically an experimental art scene. There was an experimental film festival happening in Zagreb while I was there. And I was just like, this is the coolest place I've ever been. Been I've been to experimental film festivals frequently, but like there was something about the way that they did it that reminds me so much of this film. And so watching it, I was like, now I, I'm getting it. This is their lineage. This is their heritage. And of course, they're going to be producing 
wondrous works that we never see the light of day in North America. There's another thing, too, just to not get too caught up with what does this mean? What does this mean? There's a great quote I love is like the poster for this is, of course, the main actress holding a picture frame in this like fabulous outfit. And next to her is a a bunny on a chair. And everyone's like, why the rabbit? What does the rabbit mean? And he's like, because an empty chair is boring and you need to have something on a chair. And why not a rabbit? And it's like, yeah, why not a rabbit? It's uh, it reminds me I was uh, watching uh, um, a director I really like, a Japanese director who directed this anime where halfway through the movie, everybody turns into cars and starts racing. And he was asked about this <laughs> at this forum. And he was like, because I wanted to turn them into cars. And it was like, well, yeah, of course, that's why they do it. And so there is just this like, he's playful. And there's a, a playful impetuousness about this that you kind of have to be like, you know what? It's just because it's fun. Like uh, that that spectacle, which I love, of the uh, the ice skating. Like that ice skating spectacle is so much fun and it's joyous. And um, even though you like, you know, he's making fun of it at the same time, it's still really competently and fun shot. In Sweet Movie, he has a, um, a really horrific uh, beauty contest, which kind of sits in the similar vein, which is shot very similarly, um, that I really just love that you get to be caught in the moment of this thing. And, and it's it, that speaks to the competence of this experimental filmmaker that you're still able to be engaged. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's Makaveyev's Busby Berkeley moment. Yes. And, you know, what makes this film very watchable for me is what he's doing with kind of Hollywood form and satirizing a lot of very famous Hollywood classics. And I think that's a really smart way to go about releasing a film like this. So that you're giving outsiders, North Americans, let's say, other Europeans, an entry point because they recognize the tropes and they recognize the iconography and then you're like showing them a different window into the world. Now, it has been pointed out by different people looking at this now that it this is a pre-AIDS movie. Would you guys agree with that, like in terms of its sensibility and what it's preaching? Yeah, I mean, tough because I think calling anything pre-AIDS is just so inherently... They didn't know that at the time. They didn't know that this was pre-AIDS. They didn't know, you know what I mean? So I think like in in retrospect, I think everything pre-AIDS was pre-AIDS, right? Like it, it was, It I think the AIDS crisis and I mean, as it existed and also as it continues is like such a world shifting thing that anything that exists before that you can kind of read as like, yeah, something about this was changed by the AIDS crisis. So it, it's tough. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people who are much more well-informed than I am and people who have thought about this thoroughly could like really dive into all of that, all that that entails. But um, yeah, I would say just in terms of that as sort of a label to put on this film, like, yes, but also I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that might shift my perception of the film. I'd, I'd be really interested to kind of read in more to that assessment. Yeah, like I think just because it shows unsimulated sex that is, from my eyes, uh, unprotected, mm. and I don't know the exact, you know, details around the production of this. It, yeah, sure, it's pre-AIDS because we, you wouldn't be doing that in 1984 or 1985. Where I can see it being labeled or at least described as pre-AIDS um, in perhaps a more approachable way is the scenes it shows of New York around 42nd Street 
it is showing some uh, gay clubs that, of course, would be shut down um, by the city because of the AIDS epidemic, um, which was, you know, very misguided and they didn't understand what they were doing. But uh, you're seeing a New York that would not exist, you know, in in or was under threat in um, 1983, 1984, 1985. It, it disappears. And so, you know, it's not a lot of sequences, but those New York sequences, which are totally my favorite in this film, is a bit of a time capsule. And of course you have Jackie Curtis leading those sequences. Um, and if you talk about, uh, you know, early trans pioneers of which she was one, um, then yes, talking about the AIDS crisis certainly makes sense because many were lost in, in that tragedy. I did want to bring up, because I was trying to remember what film it was, but in 2011, do you remember that film Hysteria? Yes. Which was like, With Maggie I think Gyllenhaal? Maggie, yeah, where it was like, you know, about, a scientist or someone that was kind of like Reich, yeah, but not the Reich. invention of the vibrator. Oh. Yeah. Yes, the invention of the vibrator, and like you know, you could treat women's mental illness slash hysteria, as it was called then, by like well, masturbating them. They also believed women had wandering uteruses, and so you had to like rejiggle them back into place. I believe that about my uterus. <laughs> I mean, all of that actually checks out. If I'm going to be perfectly, perfectly honest, but uh, turns out that the like the something about that film is fake. Like they, it was a based on a scientific article about the research into that doctor, and then like it came out, and they're like, none of that happened. <laughs> so like, I do love that we have this film that's much more 50 years prior or 40 years prior at that point, much more rigorous and actually based on Reich's writings and engaging with both um, psychoanalysts and and and. And Reich's studies of the Orgone, and then also Marx and 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 Busby Berkeley, and <laughs> it's like it's just such a smorgasbord of um, anarchy. Yeah. This was a smorgasbord as opposed to a souffle. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yes, yes. This is less souffle, souffle more smorgasbord. Uh, yes, I'm going to stick by that. Excellent. All right. I think that's where we should leave this one. And uh, really, listeners, if this sounds like it's for you, just go check it out. It's really unusual. Uh, possibly some substances we sometimes will recommend. Uh, but I watched this one sober and I had a good time. Uh, but that maybe that says more about me. Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you. I do want to point out that there's that meme going around about Adam Driver, that you should never marry Adam Driver because of his role in Marriage Story and in that. Cassavetes was the original guy. If you look at every <laughs> husband that Cassavetes has ever played, Mikey and Nikki, Minnie and Moskowitz, oh my God, uh, husbands, dear Lord, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Don't marry Don't John Cassavetes. <laughs> Unless you can Adam handle him got like nothing. Jenna Rollins. Yes. Uh, yes. Anna Swanson, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute oh, pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I like that I got a little bit of a challenge on this one. You know, it's fun. No, Sorry. no, I, I embrace <laughs> it. I wouldn't have watched the movie without this, and I'm glad I did. So I do, I do want to thank Yay. you guys. Tell people so how much, they can find your work. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm covering TIFF. I'm usually found at Film School Rejects. I'm also sometimes the Globe and Mail or Cinemascope. So um, I'm, I'm around. I'm watching movies. I'm here. <laughs> All right. And you can join us next week where we are headed straight to 1980 and straight into some gang warfare. It's Gina and the Long Good Friday coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. 
Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland and featured Alicia Fletcher and Anna Swanson as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.